welcome to Spreading the Good Stuff, a podcast for regional women who want to thrive in their work, wellness, family and community. We share stories of triumph, challenge, growth and change in business and in life and offer helpful insights and advice to empower you to live your best life, however that looks for you. Welcome back to Spreading the Good Stuff, Episode 5. This week, we're thrilled to be bringing you a live recording from the very first episode of our Spreading the Good Stuff conversation series, which is held before a live audience in the Victorian New South Wales border towns of Achukamoama on the mighty Murray River. This Q&A event shines a light on all the extraordinary individuals out there in regional Australia, making a difference in their communities. And it was the motivation behind this podcast. The series premiered in 2016, featuring special guest Katrina Myers in the Conversation Spotlight, who just so happens to be a co-founder of this podcast. Join Katrina in this conversation as she speaks candidly and passionately with our very own Leonie Canham during our first conversation hour. And remember, it was recorded in front of a live audience, so there might be some background noise. Enjoy this conversation. Okay, welcome folks, and on behalf of the Splendid Word and Junction Moama, we are so grateful to have you all here, um, that you've come out on this cold, wintry night. We are really excited that you could all be here with us for this first event in our Spreading the Good Stuff live conversation series. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Leonie Cannon, and together with Christy O'Brien up the back, we run a freelance media and communications consultancy here at Echuca Moama. Uh, it's called The Splendid Word. And since we started our consultancy back in 2011, I guess you could say we've been on a bit of a crusade to promote positive communication and the power of kind language across our regional communities. We've been spreading the good stuff through our storytelling and our writing for quite a few years now. Um, and back toward the end of last year, we were approached by Junction and invited to come along and bring our words from the page into a live setting um, through this conversation series. So we're pretty excited about it. Both Christy and I have journalism backgrounds, Christy in newspapers and myself in newspapers and radio. And I think it's fair to say that there came a time in both of our careers that we really fell out of love or grew out of love with reporting on the doom and gloom because that's essentially what you do in the news media. You are there to cover the, the bad news mostly. Conflict tends to, to make the front pages and they're the sorts of stories that you're encouraged to cover. Um, so essentially we started The Splendid Word as a way of changing the conversation to spread more of the good stuff and really to stand up against that endless stream of negativity and bad news that spews out of mainstream and social media uh, on a daily basis. All too often we hear and we read of people using their words to bring others down. And it's not just in the media, it's not just on the nightly news and in our newspapers. It's happening in our workplaces, in our social networks, on sporting fields, and in family life, people are using words that hurt. Sometimes it is intended and other times it's not and it really doesn't matter because in the end it has the same result and it causes damage. It causes damage to reputations of businesses and it causes damages to, damage to relationships 
with, with our staff, with our customers, with peers, with our friends and uh, with loved ones. So Christy and I, we're really passionate about teaching people the power of kind language, the beauty of positive thought and expression. So we've really been working to teach or to change the way that people use the written and the spoken word to communicate. So to communicate with their, their staff and their, their clients, with their friends, their loved ones, and of course with themselves. And that's probably one of the most important things is the way that we speak to ourselves because that really shapes who we are as people and of course impacts on how we communicate with everybody else out there in the world. We all know that words can inspire. We've all been there, we've all read things that inspire us and, and make us feel good. But words can also destroy and cause great harm. And for that one reason alone, we all must choose them well. Every one of us, we can all do better, we can all improve in the way that we communicate. And what better way to do that than, and to spread more of the good stuff than through forums like this one, um, through a live conversation series to spread more of the good stuff. And through these events, we're going to be examining the lives of extraordinary people that are living in our region and having a really positive impact in their communities and in their various patches in what they're doing. We're going to be shining, I guess you could call it an optimistic light on thought-provoking issues that matter. So we're talking about mental health, suicide, um, multiculturalism, refugees, disability, inclusion, leadership and community engagement, um, all, all those kinds of issues and much, much more. And I think the thing is that we often can get caught up in the negative discourse around these issues, which is understandable because they're, they're tough to talk about, they can be confronting, um, and sometimes we craft our words and we wield them with very little regard for the impact that they have. But the thing is, it doesn't have to be that way. That negative talk, that negative communication about those sorts of tough issues, it doesn't have to be that way. As long as we can all keep an open mind and we can use our words in a way that is kind and positive and respectful, then we can start changing our perceptions of these issues and other people's perceptions. And when we do that, we can change the conversation. So, with that said, I am delighted to welcome along and, and introduce you all to Katrina Myers, who is going to help us kickstart our live conversation series in our first live conversation hour. Katrina is a member of the Ripple Effect Steering Committee, which is um, an initiative that is designed to provide a platform for farmers to help other farmers beat suicide. Katrina has uh, a first-hand experience with mental health and the stigma surrounding mental health, and she's going to share her story with us here this evening. But the thing about Katrina is that she brings something very different to this conversation. She brings kindness and compassion, thoughtfulness uh, and dignity to an issue that is so, so deeply confronting. So... That's exactly what the Spreading the Good Stuff is all about, is um, showing that, that positive light on these kinds of issues. So could you all join with me in welcoming Katrina, please? Okay, welcome. Oh, thank you. That was a lovely introduction. Oh, thank you. 
I thought we might start with um, just if you could share a little bit of your background, um, who you are, a little bit about your family, your life at Barham and um, your wonderful business, Barham Avocados, just to give everyone a bit of a picture of, of who you are and, and your life at the moment. Um, okay, so I was uh, born in Barham and grew up on a farm um, just outside of Barham. It was a mixed, mixed sort of enterprise farm, I guess. Um, and I went away to boarding school, um, had, went to university in Melbourne, um, studied agricultural science, um, <clears throat> met Tim while I was studying and sort of travelled overseas with him and um, finished my degree by correspondence. So I've lived, um, lived in the UK for a couple of years, lived in Bangkok for 12 months, um, lived in various places around Australia, um, and then five years ago my husband and I moved back to Barham. Uh, to run the family farm and we grow avocados now, that's our main focus on the farm. And we have three kids, Daisy, Chester and Poppy. So yeah, it's been, um, it's been a yeah, pretty, pretty cool experience. Um, yeah, so very fortunate to have lived in a couple of different places in the world and um, yeah, be very, very happy back in Barham now. Mm. And you've only recently come out really to talk about your experience with mental health. I'm interested in the catalyst for that in terms of why now, but perhaps before we talk about that, would you mind just sharing your story um, about your beautiful dad with all of us? Yeah. So um, I had an awesome childhood, like a, a beautiful childhood really when I think about it. I look back and it was sort of one of those, you take it for granted at the time, but we had a very, what I would class as a normal, happy life really on the farm. Um, and I spent the first 15 years of my life there with mum and dad and I did a lot of horse riding and, you know, a bit of everything. And I went away to boarding school at the beginning of 97 when I was in year 10 and um, it was in the March of that year, I'd been away for about three months and um, I, I, rem I remember it very vividly. I was in history and I don't have a very good memory but I remember this so clearly and um, the principal came to get me and took me into the office and... My grandparents were there, and they were just, they looked like they'd seen a ghost. They were just as pale as anything, and I just knew something wasn't right. And um, they sat me down and said, there's been an accident on the farm, um, and your father's been shot. And I just immediately burst into tears. I knew that it was, you know, something horrific, and that it was, you know, you could tell by how stressed they were, that he had died. And I said, they said, oh, you know, um, he, he's been very sick and he's been very depressed, and they, they, they couldn't tell me, they couldn't bring themselves to say exactly what happened, but I knew. And it was, you know, I'd heard about suicide when I was that age, but it wasn't, it was sort of something I hadn't had any experience with at all, and it was, but I just knew as soon as they said that he'd been very depressed what had happened. And, um, yeah, so Dad had taken his life on the farm at 8 o'clock that morning, and I guess um, from there I sort of, I kind of feel like I went a bit numb after it all happened, actually. Um, I went home for, I only went home for a week, and I just, all I could think of was to get back to school. And my life kind of carried on in some ways like nothing had happened, really. I, I just went straight back to boarding school and carried on as if nothing had happened. And my mum and Sarah were still at home. I, I have a younger sister. And I think she was 11 at the time. And... Um, I think their experience was very different from mine, but I basically carried on from there like it, it hadn't even happened and I just wanted to get back to school and get away from it. Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, and so I guess um, from there it's, it's taken very different terms, um, different waves in my grieving process, but um, yeah, and, and my mum and sister have had different experiences as well. But yeah, that was that's the story behind what happened with Dad. Did, did you know, growing up at that age, did you have any awareness that he had depression or...? No, I had absolutely no idea. Mum knew and my uncle knew. Um, and he was to the point where they had taken the guns away. They knew that he was, you know, potentially suicidal and they, were, they knew how sick he was. He had been to the doctor. Um, he was booked to go to hospital, actually, the week after. Um, but I had no idea. They sort of kept it from me, really, I guess. And I was probably quite a self-centred 15-year-old who didn't really think about much else at that time. And, yeah, and, I mean, and that actually was probably a good thing. I immersed myself in school and was, you know... But, yeah, I had no idea. Mm. What was your relationship like with your, your dad? You were very close. Yeah, very close. Yeah, it was a very good relationship. He was a great man and um, he was, you know, he was everything you could want in dad, really. Like, he was awesome, you know, and he was, and, um, he was a great guy, very involved in the community, very passionate, very loved the farm. He was sporting, you know, he was good at golf and tennis and, yeah, very charismatic and, and yeah, a wonderful father, really, by all accounts, you know. So a huge shock, not not just for your family, um, but the whole community. Then it was, yeah, it was definitely a, a big shock to the whole community. I think, and I think um, one of the things with um, depression is that you keep it very well hidden. Mum knew and George knew, but as far as the rest of the community was concerned, I, I think they probably had no idea. Um, so it was definitely a very big shock to everyone in the community, yeah. Can you share with us a little bit about, just from your sort of personal experience, what that ripple effect is like for the family um, and probably friends and community as well, but when, when somebody takes their life through, through suicide, I think I've read before where you've said um, the suffering and the grieving is done in silence... And I know it's hard to compare it to other, um, when people pass away through other things, whether it's an illness or an accident, um, you only know what you know, but when you talk about that suffering in silence, I think that's very different to what other people's experience is like. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, so I guess um, when someone dies of cancer or it's a car accident or you know, there's a clear explanation, everybody seems to huddle around and, and really... Um, there's a lot of support, a lot of everyone knows what the answers are, everyone knows the reasons, and they can all breathe in a, I guess, a natural sort of way. But when it's suicide, people just don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond, um, and they, they, there's always that looking for answers. There's always someone that you need that they feel they need to blame someone, or um, and there's, there's so many unanswered questions, I guess, and and people just don't know what they really don't know what to say. They don't know whether to. Um, you know, whether it's going to make you feel bad or if you're ashamed of it or... And, and, you know, a lot of people think it's selfish. A lot of people say, oh, it's selfish and it's cowardly and, and um, oh, how, could they, how could they leave their children and all of those sorts of things. So they just... People just really don't know what to say and how to respond. There's no... And because it doesn't get talked about, there, there is no sort of, you know, support network around that. And, well, and it is getting better, but back then it was definitely just sort of like... And it's still a lot of people cover it up and say it was a heart attack or it was something else, you know. How did you react to yourself as a teenage teenager? Did you feel that 
in those around you or was it something that you almost felt that way about as well, that you didn't want to talk about it? That did, did you ever feel that sense of, I don't want to talk about this because I don't want people to know that he, he took his own life? Yeah, for me it was, um, I guess... I didn't. I didn't feel any shame, and I didn't feel. Um, I didn't feel angry. I didn't feel like he was a coward. I thought I understood it. Mum had given me a very good understanding of what had happened, but it was more the fear of how someone was going to react when I told them. I remember when I was in year, uh, was at, at year ten, and I like I was showing someone around the school who was coming to have a look at the school, and they asked me, you know, about dad, and I said that he died, and they asked me how, and I said well, it was suicide, and their reaction was just, you know, it was just. Like, they were just devastated, and I mean, I didn't even know them, but that was, I think that was enough for me then to be very wary of ever telling anyone else, and so if I would tell someone about Dad, I would just dread that they would ask me how it had happened, um, because I just, I couldn't deal with their pain, I just felt, I felt sorry for them, you know, because of the way they were feeling for me, so that was, that was, that, I found that really difficult, yeah. So... Fast forward to this time now and um, you've become a member of the Ripple Effect, which is a new organisation in Australia. Can you talk us through what the Ripple Effect is, what it's doing and how you came to be involved? Um, yeah, so the National Centre for... The, the project is set up by the National Centre for Pharma Health and um, one of their researchers there, Alison Kennedy, um, she had got in contact with me a couple of years ago now for her PhD research project because she was doing her PhD on the stigma surrounding suicide. And so I was aware of the National Centre for Pharma Health and, I, and it just popped up on a newsletter one day that they were looking for steering committee members for this new project, the Ripple Effect, um, which with the aim of helping to reduce the stigma around suicide in rural communities. And it immediately pricked my ears because I, I really felt there was a need for that and, and I still... You know, it wasn't that long ago that um, someone in our community had said to she didn't she'd forgotten about what had happened to me, and she was talking about um, someone must something must have happened, and she was saying, "Oh, suicide! You know, how could they leave their family? How could they be so cowardly? Oh, what they do with the kids?" Mm -hmm. And I was standing there, and her sister was there, and she was like, <clears throat> "I think the tree might know something about this," and she was then she was like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry," but it was sort of like this is still the attitude, you know? I mean, and. And, and so, to me, the stigma is still very much alive, um, and I just thought this is something that I need to get involved with because until we can reduce this stigma, people aren't going to get help and, and aren't going to be able to get the treatment and be proactive about things and prevent. We're not going to be able to stop these things happening. Um, so yeah, I, I just got in touch. They were actually looking more for um, male farmers, I think, but then because I'd had the contact with Alison and she knew about my like, networks through our business and everything, she thought it would be good, um, well-placed position. So yeah, so that's how I got involved. Um, and the project basically is, it's funded by Beyond Blue and it's it's to see whether a digital platform can reduce the stigma around suicide in rural communities. Um, and basically they have to get 472 men in regional communities to complete the program mm -hmm. for it to be deemed successful and to get further funding. So that, that will be quite a challenge, I think, because, um, well, I think it will be difficult to get men to sit down and do it. Um, but it's really important. <laughs> so. And it's actually really good. They've only just released it, <coughs> excuse me, in the last um, week for us to look at. Mm -hmm. um, 
and it's 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 very good. The website's beautifully designed. It's very runs very smoothly, and and it's there's it's very helpful as well. And I think it's going to be really good. So yeah, it's great to see it coming to fruition. So still too early though to say what sort of impact it's having. It's still very early yeah. days. Yeah. Um, how are you how are you feeling? Like you know all about. It. You're on the inside. You're seeing what they're going to be doing. Do you feel confident that it will? It will help and make a meaningful difference? Well, I feel like it's already making a meaningful difference. I mean, even just personally to me, you know, if it's, if it's helped me, I, I feel that it's helped me. Just, I mean, I would never have been here talking to this group of people two years ago and I would never have had the conversations that I've had in my community with people. Um, and so it's helped me personally and I think that I'm sure that if it's helping me, it's going to help other people. And just by the... It's, it's working to have the ripple effect by creating that awareness. So to me, even if they don't get that that quota of men to do it, it's still having an effect and still helping families um, who who are left behind. It's hopefully still you know getting these conversations happening so that people will go and get help earlier. So I think it's definitely yeah, it's yep. doing a great job so far, and I think it's going to be. I hope it's going to be successful. So well, naturally, you're driven to to be involved because of your experiences and having lost your dad. Um, what about you personally? What is it that you hope most to achieve through being involved with it? Yeah, I guess for me, it's just making sure that no more dads die, honestly. I mean, you just think this, it doesn't need to happen. And it kind of, it, it breaks my heart to think that dad could still be here, but he, he really could. Like, and from all what I'm learning, you know, for a long time I think I just thought, oh, well, that, that must have been the only way. But through all this, what I'm learning is that it's not the only way. You know, it's, just, it's a it's a long-term solution to a short-term problem. And there is, that, you know, they say within hours someone who, who is suicidal, just about to do it, can be totally changed around. And it's, you know, that it's that it is that important. And so, I guess that's that's the main thing for me is just to, and for all of us to live flourishing lives. You know, as well. Like I think it's we we're sort of in this. Um, you know, it's a bit what you were talking about. We're so dictated by the media and everybody's sort of... It's sort of normal to be negative, whereas we, we should be flourishing. We don't have to be that way. So, you know, I think that's really important just to keep these messages out there that we can all be, you know, flourishing. I mean, happiness is a bit of a weird word to me because it's what is happiness, but we should be thriving and flourishing and having ups and downs in life, but mm. being happy and flourishing, yeah. So that's the main thing for me to get out of it is to help people yep. flourish, yeah. And so you were sort of touching there a minute ago on well, prevention, really, and that early intervention that, that doesn't... These are preventable deaths. How, how do we go about, about that? What's, what's it look like preventing and early intervention? What does that involve? So I guess that the main thing is for all of us to equip ourselves with tools to... Um, first of all, be able to recognise the signs when our mental health is not going so well, and then second of all, what to do about it. Well, and prevention, I guess. Like, so prevention is just living healthy lives, exercising, being aware of what's going on around you, living in the moment, being grateful, um, you know, just looking after our own well-being and being aware of how important that is. And, and, um, and then, yeah, having that awareness to realise when you're not right and when things aren't going so well, what you can do about it and that you, you need to be able to do something about it. Yeah, and there are things you can do. I think it's interesting what you say there because 
we hear all those words and about gratitude and being in the moment. And I know for many people you talk to, they almost feel that as a pressure. You know that you know we're all so busy in our lives and we're getting caught up with everything. And speaking from personal experience, I'm sure everyone feels the same. Um, and we know that they're really important things to have in our life, but sometimes it's harder than just sitting down and doing 10 minutes of meditation in the morning. And so how, how do we make that more of a priority? Yeah, that was totally me as well. Like, I think for a long time I knew, and I have a very beautiful friend who's here who was like, you know, maybe you should try meditating or maybe you should try this. But we're, I kind of, we're all on our own journey and it does take, we are all responsible for that ourselves and, it's, and it is really hard. Um, but it's like physical exercise it's not easy like looking after your mental health takes work and we we can't take it for granted but it's it's actually something you really have to work at daily just like physical health it's it's and you, you know they go hand in hand you, can, you can't be physically fit if your mind's not right and vice versa really so it just takes commitment and, and i think the thing is not to be overwhelmed by it because then it's the same with um physical exercise you know you think oh well it's all too much i'll never be able to do it just Start small and, and then grow. Don't set yourself challenges that are just totally unrealistic. Like you're not going to be meditating for an hour a day when you know, you've never done five minutes before. So start off with something small and then really and build up and then it'll happen from there. I think that's really important. Or that nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you won't do it. <laughs> it won't happen. You've got to start little. Yeah. I mean, when I started meditating, I was like... Someone said, you need to meditate for five minutes a day. How on earth am I going to find five minutes a day to sit still? It just seemed ridiculous. And now I do 20 minutes as soon as I get up and 20 minutes in the afternoon, and it happens easily. And that's over a period of 18 months that I've got to that. But literally, the thought of five minutes to start with was no way. So just got to start off small. <laughs> I'm interested also to know... Um, about your own experience with mental health. Um, I know that you've sought treatment yourself along the way. Can you share a little bit about that, that time in your life and that story with us? So I think probably I didn't have a lot of self-awareness about my mental health in terms of, I think I kind of felt a bit like the Dalai Lama, like I'm fine, I'm totally fine, you know, my, everyone else is bugging in my family, but I'm okay. And then um, once I had kids, I started to think, mm, I don't know, maybe I'm not quite right. Um, and then I had this uh, really difficult relationship which caused me a lot of stress um, and it got to the point where it was it was sort of it was interfering with my life and then that was the point when I realised that I really had to do something about it um, and I went to the doctor and I, and I said look I'm just I think maybe I'm just being paranoid because of you know because of what's happened in my family but I said I think I'd rather be a bit paranoid this is how I'm feeling um, and she said, all right, well, you can go and you can get the health plan. You get, I think it's six sessions with a psychologist or something. And, um, and uh, you know, she's an awesome doctor in our hometown. We're so lucky. She wasn't like, well, maybe you should go on some medication. Um, because I, I definitely wasn't at that point. I was just, I was, you know, things I could tell things weren't going quite right. But I wasn't ready. I didn't feel like I needed to go on any medication. And she was great for that. So I went and started seeing a psychologist psychiatrist, whichever one it was, and I started meditating. I always had the exercise thing pretty okay, like I was, you know, fairly fit. Um, but the, that, and that, those two things set me back on the path. I also did a lot of, um, I, I tried lots of different things, actually, uh, at that point. 
Gabby, I don't know if anyone's heard of Gabby Bernstein. Sally and Leo, already have. Um, and I just tried, because it's, it's it, again, exactly the same as physical health. You've got to find something that works for you. And there's so many meditation apps out there, and you might not like the voice, or just, you've got to keep working at it until you find something that works. So that's what, that's what worked for me, seeing a therapist and starting the meditation. And I think that, hands down, the meditation has been the biggest factor for me in getting things right for my mind. So, yeah. So is that purely because it helps you to still all that chatter and all that overwhelm and... Yeah. It just centred you. Is that what yeah. you get out of it? That yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think also I did a Gabby Bernstein course that, that, that reminds me actually that really helped to sort of... Um, it's kind of... It's working out how to get rid of those... Because, you know, people always say, oh, just get over it. Well, that can often be said, and you're like... And that's the worst thing you can say to someone who's suffering with some sort of mental condition. Is you can't just get over it. That's, of course that's what you want to do. But you can't do that. You've got to train your mind to be able to deal with it in, in a positive way. And so, yeah, so that's why the meditation is so good. Because it's sort of like daily exercise for you, for your mind to... It's not about blocking out the thoughts completely. It's about letting the thoughts come and go and not attaching a feeling to them or that emotion to them. And that's... That is, you know, people say that to you and you're like, what does that even mean? But then once you've been meditating for a while, you're like, ah, I really get it. And that's where I'm at now. You can sit there and you can have 10 minutes of stillness and the thoughts are still coming and going, but you're not getting upset about them and you're not getting emotional. It's almost like it's clearing them all out of your head so that you're okay for the rest of the day. Um, So that's, yeah, that's been definitely the key thing for me has been that meditation. Mm. What should we do if... We notice that there's something not quite right within ourselves or within a loved one or a friend, if there's somebody around us or if it is ourselves and we're a little bit concerned that something's not quite right, are there clear steps to follow? And is this something that you, you know, maybe have training through with the, the ripple effect? Um, is that something you, you can talk us through? I think the thing is there's, there's no one-size-fits-all. It, again, it, it comes back to that. It's the same thing with physical exercise, but there isn't... And, you know, we're, we're all different. All our minds are different. We all respond differently to different things, and I think it's really important that you find something that works for you. If you think you're really... I mean, you know, obvious, the obvious one is to go to the doctor, um, but just start doing your research. Start trying different things and work out what's going to work for you. I mean... You can Google. I mean, there's so much information on the, on the, on Google for what um, what is out there. Talk to friends. Talk to people. What's worked for you? Um, what have you tried? What hasn't worked? And and it's you know it's just literally just trying different things um, until you find what works for you. And it's but it's taking that step to start something, do something, and that's that's the key thing. Don't just think that it has to be this way. That there is a better way. You just got to take those steps to get it happening. So. <coughs> There isn't, there isn't a recipe. There's no, there's definitely no one size fits all. There's, but there are so many different options out there. You've just got to do the research and work out what works for you. Yeah. yeah. Just sort of thinking about the current climate at the moment. Um, obviously, mental health is such a huge issue, um, particularly for rural communities. And at the moment, we're hearing a lot about it um, as a result of the dairy industry and the crisis affecting them there. Taking that aside and probably speaking more generally. Why is it, we hear that the stats are really stacked against farmers, why is it that they are at such a higher risk of suicide? There's, 
there's lots of reasons, but um, it, it's the you know it's the pressures of farming, it's the isolation. They're on their own a lot. They have a lot of time to think. It's the tendency to not ask for help. You know, like one of the quotes on the ripple effect thing is, "I'm the first to offer help, but the last to ask for it." Um, it's access to help as well, um, and it's the stigma surrounding. You know, men farming men are meant to be you know tough and fine and. And I think there's an expectation that we, you know, the old school way is that they're the father and the, you know, the, the stoic one that doesn't need to get help. So there's a lot of different factors um, in, in why farmers are at higher risk. Um, but you know, it's, it's, there's a great piece on the Ripple Effect website on one of the videos. It says that farmers, you know, they're so good at going and getting help for everything else on their farm. They're really good at outsourcing for everything else, and they'll, they'll fix all those sorts of problems. Well, this is just another one of those things you have to outsource, you know, like or get help for and keep it, keep on top of it. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, that that there's a lot of different factors as to why farmers are at greater risk. And I guess it's a specific approach in terms of how we deal with, you know, looking at preventing those sort of mental health issues because farmers are built that way and they, you know, seem to be tough and they have to keep everything together and so. The ripple effect is really probably dealing with a very specific um, set of circumstances, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, it is. But there's obviously there's all those flow-on effects for everybody else as well. Yeah, and, and that's what I like about it is yeah. it does have that ripple effect for everybody. But yeah, but it is definitely targeting the, the you know, and that's one of the things about it is it is it is built for farmers and for you know rural communities, which there hasn't been that sort of platform before. So it's, it's yeah, it's really good. I want to ask you about resilience and how important resilience is in um, good mental health in our communities, what the link is there, how do you feel about that? Well, I think it's key and I think that um, it's, we, don't, we don't get taught at all, like we don't have that resilience, I don't think, anymore and our kids, you know, that, and that's another reason why I wanted to get so involved with all this, is for my kids, I mean, I don't want them to have to, you know, you want to build the foundations in them so that they have good resilience. Um, we're actually, we've applied for funding to get, there's a group called the Resilience Project. Um, they work out of Melbourne and they implement programs in schools, workplaces and sporting um, groups. Um, and they, I can't remember what the five pillars are, but they base their teachings on uh, teaching kids about resilience, teaching them about wellbeing, just getting it into them while they're young, teaching them about gratitude is a big thing, just being grateful for what you've got. I mean, you know, that's a huge thing to me. We're so um, geared up in our society you now. We, we do take things for granted. And it's, they say, there's a, I don't know if you've heard of the 21-day gratitude challenge. It's as simple as every day spending a couple of minutes being grateful for what we have. And in 21 days, it can turn things around. And, and it is amazing. I do that at the end of my meditation now. I spend two minutes um, just saying all the things that I'm thankful for. And it just changes, it can just rewire your brain to have a better perspective for that day, you know. And so that, that's, a, that's building resilience in our mental health. It's, it's, it's instead of always looking at the negative, you start to focus on the positives more. And, and that's that training your brain and rewiring yourself so that, you know, you've got the foundations. Because bad things are always going to happen in life. Like, there's always going to be... No one escapes death or trauma or disaster. Like at some point, everybody experiences those things. So we all have to be equipped to deal with it so that it doesn't ruin our lives. And that's where the resilience is so important in just being able to deal with, you know, whatever comes your way.
You've been listening to Spreading the Good Stuff. We hope you've enjoyed listening to our live conversation with Katrina. You can find out more about her story and the Ripple Effect movement in our episode show notes at thesplendidword.com.au. We're also bringing you a bonus episode as a follow-on where we'll be chatting further about mental health issues as we know there are a lot of people doing it tough in rural Australia at the moment. In the meantime, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, follow our Facebook and Instagram pages at the handle Spreading the Good Stuff. Until then, take care.